0: The sun was shining brightly over Kansas City, Missouri on the morning of June 17, 1933. Outside Union Station, the usual flurry of activity was taking place as people came and went on the arriving and departing trains and crowds milled about, hurrying to catch their train as it was leaving the station or greeting loved ones who had just arrived by rail. Suddenly. The pleasant day was shattered by the sound of machine gun fire, echoing from the plaza parking lot. People began to scream and run for their lives, and automobile tires squealed. Men's voices cried out in anger and over and over came the harsh retorts of gunfire. By the time it finally came to an end, five men were dead, and two others were wounded. Blood-soaked bodies were twisted inside a bullet-scarred 1932 Chevrolet and others lay sprawled on the pavement outside, glistening with crimson gore. What no one knew in those panicked moments was that six of the victims were law enforcement officers, three of whom were agents of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, the forerunner of the FBI. The seventh man, who lay dead with most of his head blown away, was a criminal who the police officers and federal agents were returning to Leavenworth a prison from which he had made one of his famous escapes. His name was Frank Nash and he was one of the most successful bank robbers of the Depression era. Nash had been nicknamed Jelly because of his uncanny ability to escape from even the most secure prisons. But it was not only prison that Frank Nash escaped from. Some say that on the day of the Kansas City massacre, Nash managed to escape from the grave as well. His body may have been shattered by bullets that morning, but his spirit has managed to survive. I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you haven't done so already so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, I'm constantly posting content exclusively for patrons, archive episodes of Weird Darkness, personal videos, full chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating, and more. You can learn more and become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. And a huge welcome to my newest patrons, Tanith Duplessis and Veronica Lynn. Welcome to the Weirdo Family, ladies, and thank you so much for supporting what I do. This episode is brought to you by Send Out Cards. It's a service I've been using for years, and I love it. I'll tell you a little bit more about it later on. But if you'd like to give it a try for free, you can go to sendoutcards.com/weird. Remember the slash weird part. That's sendoutcards.com/weird. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness, weirdo family member Kara Moore tells us about the town she grew up in with too many ghosts and specters to count. Gangsters, guns, and ghosts – they've all resided at Kansas City's Union Station. If you live in a house that seven generations of your family have lived and died in, you have to expect there might be a little bit of paranormal activity there. Dorothy Dingley haunted a young farm boy back in the 1600s But now it appears she has come back… or she has never left. Ghosts have been seen in the bathroom, but do ghosts ever need to use the bathroom? It appears one did. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Frank Nash never achieved the notoriety that was given to the famous bank robbers of the day, but he enjoyed a career that was just as profitable and perhaps even more daring than most. Nash was born in Indiana in 1887, and in 1902 his father, John O. Nash, moved the family to Oklahoma so that he could establish a hotel in Hobart. As a young man, Frank worked in the hotel's kitchen as a cook but eventually, his father turned over the ownership of the place to his daughter, Alice, and her husband, John Long. Frank was not disappointed. He never believed that he was cut out for hotel work, either in the kitchen or as a front desk clerk. He was looking for more excitement, and soon found it by committing a series of small burglaries around the Hobart area. In 1913, he teamed up with two accomplices, and they continued their successful series of crimes until Nash grew to suspect that one of them had talked to the police. Without a second thought, Nash murdered him. Nash was arrested and brought to trial but managed to get acquitted. He then murdered a witness who had testified against him and, for that, he was sentenced to serve a life term at Oklahoma's McAllister State Prison. Nash was a model prisoner at McAllister and early in 1918, his sentence was commuted to 10 years. In July 1918, he was given a full pardon and released. In a short time, he was back to committing crimes again. Nash was next arrested in October 1919 after a series of minor robberies made him a suspect in a bank heist that was pulled in Cordell, Oklahoma. This time, the charges were dropped. He then put together a gang to rob the bank in the small farming community of Corn, Oklahoma. He was arrested and convicted again and sent back to McAllister to serve a 25-year sentence. Remarkably, the former convict got another reduction in sentence. On December 29, 1922, the governor signed an order commuting Nash's lengthy sentence to just five years, and the next day he was set free. Over the next eight months, Nash is believed to have taken part in a number of murders and robberies, mostly with the Al Spencer gang. On August 20, 1923, he took part in the holdup of a mail train in Osage County, Oklahoma, that turned out to be the country's last great horseback train robbery. The gang made off with $20,000 in cash and bonds, but not before Nash brutally assaulted a mail custodian leaving him with a serious concussion. Nash remained on the run after his robbery until late autumn 1923 when he was discovered working as a ranch hand in Mexico. His boss refused to turn him over to U.S. authorities while Nash was still employed in the country but compromised with officials by sending him over the border on a bogus errand. He was quickly arrested. On March 3, 1924, Nash was sentenced to 25 years in Leavenworth for robbery and assault. He didn't receive any political help or clemency this time, but he did receive unusual privileges for a prisoner with his past record. He was a model prisoner at Leavenworth and was made a trustee. After being given an outside assignment in October 1930, he calmly walked away from the prison and disappeared what Nash did after his escape is not only unclear, but it may also be the stuff of legend. It is known that he hooked up with the Ma Barker Alvin Creepy Carpus gang for some time after meeting up with them in St. Paul. It's believed that Nash may have known the Barkers from his days in Oklahoma, but no one really knows for sure. Nash is also believed to have worked briefly for the Capone Mob, with the rackets in Kansas City and with several small outfits organizing and carrying out robberies and burglaries. In the early part of 1933, Nash underwent plastic surgery to straighten his crooked nose and he purchased a toupee to try and hide his well-known bald head. These changes were not very effective given the bank robber's distinctive appearance, so he and his new bride, Frances Luce, decided to get away to one of the underworld's most protected locations, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Unfortunately for Frank Nash, federal agents who considered the Hot Springs Police Department to be one of the most unreliable in the country kept the White Front under almost constant surveillance. On June 16, 1933, agents Frank C. Smith and F. Joseph Lackey from the Bureau of Investigation's Oklahoma City office spotted Nash lounging with a bottle of beer in front of the cigar store. They followed him to a horse bedding parlor where he was placed under arrest and rushed out of town. The two Bureau of Investigation agents drove into Fort Smith, and at 8.30 p.m. they spirited their manacled prisoner aboard the Missouri-Pacific Flyer headed for Kansas City. When they arrived, they would be met the following morning by more federal officers and local police officers Who would accompany them on the final leg of their trip to Leavenworth. Realizing that Nash's criminal friends might try and help him escape, the agents kept their route a secret. The agents joked in their stateroom with Nash about his new disguise – a red wig that he had bought to cover his bald head. Nash good-naturedly shrugged. I paid a hundred bucks for it in Chicago. You do what you can. He told them that he also had his nose straightened and then asked the agents not to pull on his mustache because that was the real thing. Word spread about Nash's capture, passing from Galatus and Hot Springs to Herb Farmer outside Joplin to Vern Miller, the member of the barker Carpus gang who was living in Kansas City. Miller learned that an unnamed prisoner was heading to Kansas City by train and he began making arrangements to meet him. On the morning of June 17th, there were a number of people waiting to see Jelly Nash. Federal agents Raymond Caffrey and R.E. Vetterly and city detectives W.J. Red Grooms and Frank Hermanson were waiting to escort Nash to Leavenworth in their car. Also waiting were five or more gangsters, the would-be rescuers of Frank Nash. One of them was definitely Vern Miller, but the identities of the others are in serious doubt to this day. When the Missouri Pacific Flyer pulled into the station, Agent Lackey instructed Smith to stay with Nash in the stateroom while he went to the loading platform to find his contacts. Establishing their credentials to be legitimate, Lackey then asked the men to help him survey the immediate area. All were satisfied that nothing appeared out of the ordinary. Lackey then went back to the train to retrieve Nash. As Miller and the other waiting gangsters surveyed the scene and determined that the prisoner was Nash, they went out to the parking lot and took up positions among the parked automobiles. Nash was led from the train platform and through the station toward the outdoor plaza by the two agents, Lackey and Smith, who both carried shotguns, and by Otto Reed, police chief of McAllister, Oklahoma. The bandit was still wearing his ridiculous toupee, which kept slipping off his head. The trio, joined by the sour lawmen, began to get into a Chevrolet that was parked in the plaza. Nash got into the front seat, and Lackey, Smith, and Reed got into the back. Agent Caffrey walked around the automobile to the driver's side when a thunderous voice yelled at the lawmen from across the parking lot, up, up, get him up. Frozen in shock, the agents and the detectives looked up to see three men standing on the running boards of a nearby car pointing machine guns in their direction. The man who had yelled at them waved his weapon back and forth while another, heavy-set man pointed the muzzle of his gun directly at their windshield. For the next several moments, the entire parking lot was frozen in time. The lawmen dared not move, and bystanders stood gaping at the drama that was playing out in front of them. Police detective Red Grooms moved first. He jerked his pistol out and squeezed off two shots, hitting the heavyset man in the arm. The wounded gangster never paused. He shouted, let him have it. A second later, he pulled the trigger of his machine gun and he and the others raked the Chevrolet with bullets. Burning lead ripped into the metal body of the car and shattered the window glass. Agent Caffrey spun to the pavement, dead before he hit the ground. Police Chief Reed took several bullets to the chest and fell to the floor of the car. Agents Smith and Lackey were also hit several times and pitched forward onto the floorboards. Lackey somehow managed to pull himself up and thrust his revolver out the window, returning a few shots. The weapon was shot out of his hand. Agent Vetterly and Detectives Grooms and Hermanson were all wounded and fell to the pavement, scrambling for any cover they could find. Inside the car... Nash waved frantically at the gangsters with handcuffed wrists. He screamed at them, for God's sake, don't shoot me! His voice was silenced by machine gun fire as bullets ripped away most of his head. Bystanders ran screaming for cover as bullets cut through the air. Many ducked behind cars while others merely dropped to the pavement and covered their heads with their hands. Mrs. Lottie West, a caseworker for the Traveler's Aid Society witnessed the massacre from the station. She spotted a police officer that she knew, Mike Fanning, who came running to see what was going on in the parking lot. She screamed at him, they're killing everybody. Bullets were now bouncing into the pavement in front of the car. They tore into the already wounded lawman, killing detectives, grooms, and Hermanson. Mrs. West screamed at Officer Fanning, shoot the fat man, Mike, shoot the fat man, Fanning later recalled, I knew she meant the big man whose machine gun was doing such bloody work. I aimed at him and fired. He whirled around and dropped to the ground. I don't know whether I hit him or whether he fell to escape. In any event, he got up, fired another volley into the car, and ran toward a light Oldsmobile car, which roared west towards Broadway. As the car raced out of the parking lot, I saw three more men in it, and there may have been more. Just as Fanning was about to walk over to the lawman's car, which was by now a smoldering, bullet-riddled ruin, a 1933 Chevrolet with more gunmen inside sped past the parked car and fired into it from the rear. As the second car sped away, Fanning ran over to the lawman's auto and looked inside. He reported, it was in shambles. In the front seat, a man was dead under the steering wheel. On the rear seat was another dead man. On the right was an unconscious man, but he was groaning. A third man lay face down on the floor. I could see that he was alive. Agent viterli holding a wounded arm, staggered over to where Fanning stood. He stared down at the pool of blood that was gathering on the pavement at their feet. Five men were dead. Federal agent Caffrey, Chief Reed, detectives Hermanson and Grooms, and Frank Nash, the man the shooting supposedly had been designed to set free. In hours, newspapers across the country screamed headlines about the Kansas City massacre. The public was shocked, and federal agents and local lawmen scoured the Kansas and Missouri countryside looking for the escaped gunmen. Witnesses tentatively identified one of the killers as Vern Miller, and Mrs. West was sure that the fat man had been Charles Arthur Pretty Boy Floyd. The authorities deduced that the third gunner must have been Floyd's sidekick, Adam Ricchetti. That was the way that J. Edgar Hoover began presenting it to the press, and since that time it has largely been accepted as the truth. Basically, the official story was that when news of Nash's arrest reached his pal, Vern Miller, he went to John Lanzia, an underboss for Kansas City's corrupt political leader Tom Pendergast. Lanzia declined to put any of his own men at risk in a rescue attempt, and Miller had to recruit Floyd and Roschetti, who were passing through town and were conveniently hiding out at his house. The attackers opened up with machine guns and killed Nash in the battle that followed. That is the official story, but in more recent times it appears that the FBI account may be based more on speculation, perhaps even perjury survivors could not initially identify Floyd or Rachetti than on actual evidence. Many believe that it was a very public way for Hoover to give the Bureau the excuse it needed to carry firearms and to make arrests without using local lawmen. Soon after the massacre, President Franklin D. Roosevelt passed a law that broadened the agency's jurisdiction and authority. Agents were allowed to carry firearms and given almost a free hand in their pursuit and apprehension of criminals. It is also believed that the official statement was used as a way to directly go after Floyd and machete in October 1934, Floyd and Rachetti were spotted by Ohio authorities who captured Roschetti after a gunfight and then called in agents from Chicago. The group literally stumbled across Floyd as he was running across a field and killed him. Examined at the mortuary, Floyd's shoulder bore no scars from a wound that he was supposed to have received in Kansas City. Adam rachetti was executed in 1938 and he swore to his grave that he and Floyd had no part in the massacre. So if Floyd and Roschetti didn't kill those five men in Kansas City, who did? One of the shooters was undoubtedly Vern Miller. Miller, who worked for a time with the barker Carpus gang, was an expert marksman who had learned his craft as a machine gunner in the service during World War I. After being discharged from the Army, he returned home to South Dakota where his prowess with firearms earned him a job as a policeman. Later he was elected sheriff, but Miller felt constricted by the law and turned to a life of crime, first as a bootlegger and later as a bank robber. After a series of arrests, he ended up in St. Paul where he met Barker and Carpus, and then drifted to Chicago where he hired out as a gunman. Miller was known for his violent temper and often erratic behavior and the Kansas City massacre has all of the earmarks of the kind of unstable operation that he would plan. In the hours after the massacre, the police trailed Miller to his home after the shooting but found that he had fled. They found bloody rags in his living room, but nothing else. Miller and his current girlfriend, Vivian Mathias, had escaped to Chicago. On October 31, 1933, federal agents raided their apartment, but Miller had escaped. Matthias was taken into custody and charged with harboring a fugitive. Almost a month later, on November 29th, the naked and mutilated corpse of Vern Miller was found in a roadside ditch outside Detroit. His hands and feet were tied, and he appeared to have been tortured before his death. His skin had been burned with flat irons, an ice pick had been used on his tongue and face, and he had been badly beaten his captors had finished him off by crushing his skull with some sort of heavy object. To the investigators who had been pursuing him, Miller's murder had all the signs of an organized crime execution. Underworld theories surfaced about who else might have been involved in the massacre. It seemed to be common knowledge that Floyd and Roschetti had not, so who else was in the car? Two of the most often-suggested accomplices were little-known gunmen Maurice Denning and William Solly Weissman. Strangely, Weissman was found murdered just two weeks after Miller's body was discovered. He had also been beaten and tortured and then was dumped alongside a road outside of Chicago. Maurice Denning was never seen again, dead or otherwise. Were these three men killed because they botched the rescue of Frank Nash or because of something else? One of the most prevalent theories behind the Kansas City massacre is that it was never designed to help Frank Nash escape from custody, but rather to make sure that he was permanently silenced. Many believe that powerful figures in the underworld were afraid that Nash might talk about things he knew to stay out of prison, endangering their operations. Rather than let him be taken into custody, they had him killed and hired Miller, Denning, and Weissman to pull the trigger then, because they knew who had ordered the hit to be carried out, killed those three as well. We will likely never know for sure what really happened, but there is one rumor that circulated in mob circles that suggests that the assassins may not have been the ones who really killed Frank Nash. He may have accidentally been killed by a federal agent instead. There was, and still is, speculation that the wounds that killed Frank Nash and Agent Caffrey, both in the front seat of the car, may have been caused by a weapon that was in the back seat, in the hands of another federal agent. The story has persisted that when the fighting broke out, the agent began fumbling with the action of an unfamiliar 16-gauge shotgun that was loaded with steel ball bearings instead of the customary lead buckshot. The shotgun then went off by accident, blowing most of Nash's head all over the roof of the car and fatally wounding Agent Caffrey. Some of the ball bearings were reportedly found in the agent's body during an autopsy. But whatever happened, the end result was the same and Frank Jelly Nash had his life instantly snuffed out. Whether he was killed by accident by a shot that he never saw coming or whether he was slain by his friend Vern Miller, his spirit now refuses to rest. To this day, Local stories have it that his ghost can still be found wandering through Kansas City's Union Station. Does he walk that last stretch through the station on his way to the lawman's car and to his doom? Or is he searching for his killers, wondering what became of the man who betrayed him back in 1933? Stories of a haunting have swirled about Union Station for many years. Some people have reported seeing figures of men in dark suits outside the building, near where the massacre took place. When approached, these figures always vanish. There are also stories of footsteps being heard on the pavement outside and inside the building, in the corridor leading out to the parking lot. Some have surmised that these phantom footsteps may be the reenactment of the last steps taken by Frank Nash and the federal agents as they walked to their doom. The ghost of Frank Nash is perhaps the most commonly reported specter connected to the massacre. Visitors and staff members have reportedly seen Nash's ghost at several different locations in Union Station, both in the daytime and at night. Does Frank Nash still lurk in the darkest corner of Kansas City's Union Station? And if he does, how long will he linger here? It seems very possible that his confused and tortured spirit Has remained behind at the place where he met his tragic end, but how long he may stay here is a question that no one is able to answer. One night, I was lying on my bed trying to go to sleep. I'd recently moved into a new apartment and I was attending college. After lying down for a few minutes, I started to feel something tugging at my sheets. I opened my eyes and I saw a little boy standing there at the end of my bed. I didn't see him again, but then I started getting weird things happening. Books and papers would fall off my desk and my lamp wouldn't stay on. I also found a lot of objects had been moved to the spot where I saw this young boy standing. A lot of weird things have happened in this apartment, but I haven't moved yet. They don't seem malicious at all. Has anyone else had any experiences with short-term rentals like this? Completely harmless spirits who just seem to want to say hello? Tales of death, ghosts, and consequence in South Petherwyn have come to light once again as a Cornish historian aims to make a 17th century tragedy known. Cornwall has its fair share of tales and ghosts and spirits, but some may be familiar with the ghost of Dorothy Dingley, who supposedly haunted a young local boy in a field near South Petherwyn following her death in the 1600s. However, it has emerged that Dorothy has been paying visits to more recent owners of a connected home in the parish of South Petherwyn. Keen historian and researcher Barry West from St. Austell has been researching a 17th-century ghost story involving an ancient Cornish family and a sad end for an unfortunate woman. Barry told the Post that his journey with this particular tale came about after a mother of a child at a primary school in the New K area and asked him if he knew of any Cornish mysteries after the school carried out a series of Cornish history sessions. He said, this all started for me when a woman who had a young daughter who was doing history in her school asked if I could help find a Cornish mystery, so this is a new story for me too. Dorothy Dingley, whose surname has also been referred to as Dinglet and Durant, was believed to have been well acquainted with an ancient family who lived at Bodethon House in the parish of South Petherwyn, the Bly family, who were wealthy but not aristocratic farmers. It is thought that Dorothy had fallen pregnant, but had tragically died during childbirth in 1662, with the eldest Bly son suspected to be the father of the baby. He disappeared soon after Dorothy's death. There are two theories that Dorothy died either three or eight years before she was seen as a ghost. In Dorothy's day, becoming pregnant before marriage was seen as shameful and was frowned upon. But the stigma did not seemingly apply to the fathers of the children. Barry said life would have been tough, many unwed mothers or widows with small children, without a home, in poor health, hungry and exhausted, and nowhere to go so who knows what the future might have held for Dorothy. In 1665, it is believed that the youngest Bligh son, known in many documents detailing the occurrences as 16-year-old Sam, was haunted by the ghost of Dorothy every morning at dawn on his way to school, thought to be Lankiston Free School run by 29-year-old parson John Ruddle. Sam crossed a field each day in South Petherwyn, then known as Higher Brown Quartals, he saw the apparition several times during his walk. She would glide across the grass, pointing at something that he could not see, but would not take any notice of the boy. He claimed that he saw her as clear as day, but became frightened as he recognized her as Dorothy Dingley, who had died three years previously and whom he had seen buried in the ground at her funeral. Sam eventually became so afraid that he journeyed an alternative route through the Under Horse Road, but still the apparition of Dorothy followed. His friends and family soon noticed a change in Sam's behavior as he came more sullen and moody, with his friends putting it down to laziness or something that had happened in his life that he wasn't willing to share with them. In the book, Lonkeston Past and Present, a historical and descriptive sketch published in 1888 by Alfred F. Robbins It details a theory of Robinson Crusoe author Daniel Defoe having been the first to mention the story in 1720 in a remarkable passage of an apparition, 1665, where he told of a Mr. Ruttle who kept a school in Launceston and had exercised a haunted field for a troubled boy. It is widely believed that this was not a fictitious narrative, but one penned by Mr. Ruttle himself, which Defoe had managed to claim into his possession whilst at Launceston in 1705. Robert Stephen Hawker, from Morwenstow, also retold the tale in The Bodethan Ghost, 1867. Parson John Ruddle, who was head teacher of the school in Launceston, was called to by the parents of Sam Bly. He eventually spoke to Sam alone and agreed to go to the field with him one morning. To his disbelief, the parson saw the apparition and, after having to take a break due to his wife's illness, applied for permission from the Bishop of Exeter to exorcise the field and the ghost. Upon the time of the exorcism, in July 1665, he spoke to Dorothy, who reportedly told him, "'Before next Yuletide, a fearful pestilence will lay waste the land and myriads of souls will be loosened from their flesh.'" Dorothy told the parson that she had committed a great sin, and it is widely believed that she named the man she had committed the sin with as the eldest son of the Bly family. After vanishing, the parson returned to the field the next morning and told the ghost that he had spoken to the man who had apologized and swore to make penance. Again, she vanished, and the parson returned the next evening, and Dorothy disappeared for supposedly the last time where she was not seen again. The following June, the village suffered a drought and a plague was inflicted on the area. The Blyes are an ancient farming family who were based in Cornwall since the Norman Conquest. Their ancient seat was Bodethan House, South Perowan, which came to them in the late 1300s after Juliana Renfrey gave all her lands and tenements in Bodethan to her daughter Joanna, who was married to John Bly. The Bly lineage runs from the 1400s and 1500s to the 1700s after William Bly died in 1744, leaving no male heir to succeed him. As for Dorothy Dingley, records in South Petherwyn do not go back far enough to suggest she was ever buried locally or that she ever existed. Whether she died in 1657 or 1662 is unconfirmed. A Dingley family was known to have occupied the Lozant and Lincolnhorn areas from 1577, and a Dorothy Dingley had married a Richard, son of George Durant from Worcester, as told in Sabine Baron Gould's Cornish Characters and Strange Events 1909. It is thought that both Dorothy and her husband were buried in South Petherwyn in 1677, making this Dorothy too old to be the ghost of the story. However, there is a theory that it may have been the ghost of her mother, also a Dorothy, who died in South Petherwyn in 1655, approximately. Reverend James Dingley was a vicar of South Petherwyn from 1682 until 1695, born in 1655, only 10 years before the supposed ghost of Dorothy Dingley was seen by Sam Bly. Bonathon House is based in the parish of South Petherwyn, and came into the Jasper family line some years ago, who lived in the house for 17 years and still run an abattoir from the farm. The property is mentioned in Charles Dickens' journal All the Year Round, which began publishing in 1859. Maureen Jasper explained her experience at Bodethan House, having lived in the house for 17 years. She is convinced that her family has also experienced the ghostly presence of Dorothy Dingley. She said, we were renovating it, the house, before, and she didn't like that. One family previously staying at the house also experienced an unusual occurrence. The couple had a little girl, about three or four years old at the time, who had woken up in the night and told her mother that the woman would put her back to bed. Mrs. Jasper said, Dorothy is definitely visible to children. She also liked playing with electric lights. We'd often have the lights flickering on and off, and the kettle would suddenly boil on its own. My cat used to watch and be very confused. So that was all happening when we were renovating." Mr. and Mrs. Jasper bought the property in 1957, opening the farm up for their meat business in 1960. The couple moved out of Bonathon around 35 years ago, and her son Graham and his family moved in, who lived there for many years. Mrs. Jasper told the Post that there is information on the Bly family in her copy of the Domesday book, which is currently stored away. She said, Obviously, it was a long time ago, the 1600s, so I don't know how long they, the Bly family, were there for. Graham and his family lived there for a long time, but eventually moved on, away from the business. A chap bought it after that. He doesn't know anything about the history of the place, and I don't think he's particularly bothered about it. Having experienced flickering lights and the kettle mysteriously switching on by itself, Mrs. Jasper also said that her daughter had experienced Dorothy. She continued, My daughter, I think we had gone away for a few days and my mom was looking after her. She had a friend round to stay and they were just sat in the lounge watching TV. We used to keep a torch on the side because you never know when you'll need it and it just came on suddenly and shined in her face. She was only about 12 or so at that time. Despite the ghostly goings-on, Mrs. Jasper thinks Dorothy came in peace, not meaning any harm on the people living in the house. It was always a friendly situation, whatever it was, it never got nasty or frightening, she added. Unless you've actually experienced it and looked inside the house, you probably wouldn't think anything of it. The story was a big project for Barry, who said, It's interesting, but very sad. It just shows there were no consequences for men at the time, but for women, they suffered tremendously. I think people in Cornwall deserve to know about this story, as it could soon become forgotten, and it's also about equality as well. There's a lot of that in the news at the moment, so I'd like to show how Dorothy suffered at the hands of inequality in the men around her. Barry paid a visit to Boddothan and St. Paternus Church in South Petherwyn recently, where Mrs. Jasper had said that Dorothy is supposedly buried. Unfortunately, there was no evidence of Dorothy having been buried there, It's unusual to find a headstone from that time because it was so long ago. You're more likely to see headstones dating from the 1700s, 1800s. There were also no records in the church, but I did find that there are memorial stones in the church for the Bly family. Researching Cornish history, locations, and people is something that Barry feels is vital to teaching young people about their local past. He said, For Cornish schoolchildren, they don't get told about the real history in their towns. Even when I was at school, in history, you just learnt about historical incidents that started in London or someone who was from London. Everything started from there. I think if we could start the stories locally and then work back to any links with London, that's fine. But with local history, we've got to start teaching children about their pasts because it's so important. There's so much I'd want to share on all history. It inspires young people because there is a lot around here. Even in small towns like Launceston, It has a very rich history, a significant history." Barry said that the story about Dorothy is inconclusive. We can't find anything on Dorothy. That's because it may be fictitious. Dorothy and her family could have been very poor, perhaps they couldn't afford to give her a proper burial, so it's inconclusive at the moment. However, what we do know is that the Bly family definitely existed. He added, "...the story may or may not be one we can ever prove. However, there is almost always a message in the stories of long ago, and maybe this one reflects the values of the day, and that a mother that had an illegitimate child could not be allowed to rest because of the so-called sin she had committed, and the power of good over evil, the parson Ruddle, a man of the cloth, being good, of course, talking to the spirit and, in effect, getting her to leave. It is thought that John Ruddle was appointed as the vicar of Alternan in 1679. And was later made prebendary of Exeter in 1680. Ruddle is also thought to have exercised an ancient tree in Trebers where a ghost of a girl who had once danced in the tree, fallen and broken her back, was believed to have possessed it. He died in January 1699, age 62. An undated edition of Lawton Parish Magazine suggests that the young Bly son, haunted by Dorothy, grew up to become the mayor of Launceston in 1696. However, upon looking at the records via the Launceston then-website, a Charles Blight is listed as the mayor of Launceston from 1696 to 1698. Could Sam have been the boy's middle name? Keep listening, we have a lot more Weird Darkness to come. This episode of Weird Darkness is sponsored by Send Out Cards. You can try it absolutely free at sendoutcards.com/weird. Be sure to include that slash weird part. at sendoutcards.com/weird. Personally, along with sending cards, I also use sendoutcards/weird for my contacts list, birthdays, anniversaries, child birthdays, email addresses, phone numbers. You can separate people into groups as well. For example, for me, I have three different groups that I've created, one for friends and family, one for business contacts, and one for you, my Marlar House weirdos, where I send cards to you for my patrons. And unlike other contact lists, this one reminds me via email when something is coming up, so I can decide at that point whether or not I want to send a greeting card for that person's birthday, anniversary, or whatever. And That way, the card will never be late, either, because it's reminding me well in advance. If you'd like to try it out absolutely free – I have it set up for you that way – you can try it out at sendoutcards.com slash weird. Again, that's sendoutcards.com slash weird. I've been reading some of the stories on this site and would like to share mine. This isn't the scariest story, but it's true. I live with my mom and my sister. We've lived here almost four years and nothing happened up until a few months ago. My bedroom is above the downstairs bathroom and I can hear when the light is turned on and off. The light switch is one of those string pulls and it makes a very distinctive clicking sound. My mom and sister had gone out for the day. I was in my room watching TV. All the lights were off downstairs. I'd turned them off myself. Suddenly, I heard the bathroom door open downstairs and the light switch being used. Thinking that mom and Rachel, my sister, had returned, I turned my TV off and went downstairs to see them. But as I got to the bottom of the stairs, the bathroom door was closed and the light was turned off and absolutely no one was home. I was still on my own. I have no explanation for it. I heard the light being turned on very clearly. I even went downstairs thinking they were back and they weren't. There was nobody down there. I really enjoy reading about the paranormal. I've grown up with it in a way. Several people have seen strange things in our house. Seven generations of our family have lived and died here. My uncle always claims that he saw his father after he had died, sitting in a chair in the dining room, looking down, staring at his hands. Apparently, he was perfectly solid and completely unaware of my uncle standing in the doorway watching him. Uncle James blinked, and the spirit just disappeared. My father said that he saw the same man walk straight through a closed door. He also saw him peering through a window at him when he was outside gardening. My brother says that same grandfather walked into his room and sat talking to him several days after he had died. My brother only knew him from photographs, and he was too terrified to say anything until the old man left. What did he talk about? Apparently, he wanted to talk about his rose bushes. He was a keen gardener and told my brother all about them. Every single time we leave the house, we expect to come home and find things have been moved around. Plates have been moved, ornaments, you name it. Sometimes the TV changes channel or music starts playing. It can be really eerie. Last night, I had my feet sticking out of my blanket. I felt something pushing on my feet. I thought it was our dog because sometimes he sleeps on my feet some nights. This time, however, I felt a pair of hands around my feet. I sat up to look, and there was nothing there. There are so many reports from my town, and that backstory is the basis of the many paranormal incidents to my family and many other people I've known. But the town itself is perhaps the story that I should start with. Imagine yourself going past a field on a bright, sunny day, and you see women and children dressed in period clothing, and you don't know anything about them. Then imagine so many paranormal events going on around you, That you can't seem to avoid, so it becomes normal for you. As the Bible said of Abel, his blood crieth up from the ground. And this is what you hear from the many voices groaning and talking around you, where you can't see anyone. People have witnessed ghosts at other battlegrounds, such as Gettysburg, but what if the ones you see are not known about, even though the tragedy was just as great? In 1791, General Arthur St. Clair, at that time governor of the Northwest Territory that included Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, was commissioned by President George Washington to go to Kekyonga, a former Native American village, and is known today as Fort Wayne, Indiana. While he was in Washington, D.C., President Washington had advised him to make sure he built up fortifications every night and never let his guard down because, at the time, we were still at war with the Native Americans. St. Clair was given the task to take over half the newly formed U.S. Army and their camp followers of over 250 women and children to settle the territory. The expedition started out badly, as St. Clair had been cheated on the correct ammunition. The money had been spent by Secretary of War Henry Knox on land speculation. So St. Clair entered into the wilderness with limited weaponry. He had gone from Marietta, the original capital, to Cincinnati and then marched north. His scouts had mistakenly informed him of their location when they had reached the area of what is today Fort Recovery. He believed he was near St. Mary's River, which was still well north. They also were on the wrong side of the Wabash River. They should have been on the west side in order to travel much more easily to Kekeonga. St. Clair had been suffering from gout. his soldiers had to carry him, which made the native warriors consider him a coward. The night before the battle, St. Clair had not given the order to fortify the camp. They had been told that there were native warriors active in the area, but he felt his scouts were reliable. It was November 4, 1791, at approximately 7am, when they were attacked by the combined forces of Little Turtle and Blue Jacket, with over 2,000 warriors. It was hand-to-hand most of the day, and the soldiers ran out of ammunition and those shooting the cannons were failing because they could not load the cannons fast enough. Because the soldiers had no more ammunition and the native warriors were more excelled at hand-to-hand, the soldiers simply could not fight, and St. Clair refused to give the retreat order, so they dropped their rifles and ran, to which St. Clair called them cowards. By this time most of his officers were dead along with every woman and child. Those soldiers who ran were chased down and killed with only a few escaping who ran back south for days until they made it back to Fort Jefferson between what is now Greenville and Dayton. Only those who made it were called to testify in the court-martial of St. Clair. St. Clair himself escaped after having two horses shot out from under him but left all those bodies he was responsible for. When he made it back to Washington, D.C. and was called before Congress, this was the very first congressional investigation and court-martial of a U.S. officer. Washington had reminded him of the warning and because the loss was so heavy, it was at that time the greatest defeat suffered by the U.S. Army, over half the standing army was killed. The official statement was that only 900 soldiers were killed but there were more than 1,200 in all the women and children. In order not to provoke a scandal, Washington exercised executive privilege and did not allow the actual figure to be made known publicly, until the survivors began talking about the carnage. Simon Gertie, a white man who'd been kidnapped as a child by a native tribe and raised by them, identified Richard Butler by the pendant the Order of Cincinnatus that he wore. Butler fought so bravely, that the warriors tied him to a tree, cut his chest open, and took out his heart and shared it amongst themselves, the belief being that his bravery was an example. Two years later, General Mad Anthony Wayne was sent back to see about the remains of all the people and build a fort. His opposing enemy was actually less than half of what St. Clair had encountered, and Wayne decided to go ahead and fight ahead of the reserves from Kentucky that were days behind. It was an easy battle for him, but all the remains of the people they had found they took up and put in a massive grave in which the town monument sits on today. But several times farmers would find skeletons or skulls, and they had two more bone-burying days, which some older people in town remember seeing when they were young. This did not curtail any of the paranormal activity in the town. There were many urban legends that came out of this event. One such was a mysterious man who would go around digging in fields because he was looking for the money which was to be paid to the soldiers once they would made it to Kekyonga. I don't know if that's true, but this was reported by some older farmers. Yes, this Arthur St. Clair descended from the same St. Clair family of Scotland who built Rosalind Chapel of the Knights Templar. He was a Scottish right Freemason, but his exploit was more of cowardice than his forebearers. This event left a mark on the town and surrounding area. Many people have reported seeing balls of light, shadow people, the hat man, an old man from the waist down, soldiers, women and children, and heard the moans and groans of the dying. Every now and then, one hears the sounds of cannons or drums beating. The old fort house built by Wayne was reconstructed and opened to the public but it had to be closed after some time because the wax figures representing the period were muttering and whispering to people that came to view them. Young people dared each other to spend the night in the fort house, but no one ever could. I could say that is an urban legend, but this is in fact very true. At night, one can see a darkness more than the night descend on certain areas. Shadow people move randomly from farm to farm or house to house. The foreboding north of town sometimes is unbearable, but most people there when I was young were farmers and didn't go out at night. Besides, they were the staunch and practical type who didn't talk about such things. It was better to not talk about it than to have people think they were crazy. That was until the local priest began to be called to more and more houses to deal with paranormal activity in the homes of his parishioners. It was the worst defeat one which the government chose to cover up, and we will never know the names of the women or children who died. But every now and then, they make their presence known. And if you are very aware, you might just be able to see them as well. And the best that you can hope for is to tell them that you know what happened, and as the monument in town says, their deeds are immortal. They are not dead. They are just resting and waiting." but among the native warriors, there had been a silent calling for them to come from far away as Georgia. The great chief, Dragging Canoe, had gone there, and how he knew the battle was to take place that day, no one can say. Even those allied Shawnee knew the day and the hour it would take place. They were, in their view, defending their land. They did not know how easy it would be for them with St. Clair in charge. There were some native warriors who had been killed But the number was far less than the U.S. settlers. They also had been left there for two years, so they were buried in the same grave as the others. The monument is not put to silence the blood crying up from the ground, and we never had a crybaby bridge or lover's leap or even mysterious women in white hitchhiking. What we had was the voices, the moans, sadness and darkness and always the sense that something is just about to happen and that you are being watched no matter where you are. Websites can only give you the historical account, but if you grew up there or even passed through, you will experience the paranormal. One time I had taken a young friend there who had come from another town in southern Ohio and she had no idea of the history. She did not know where she was and I was driving she'd been asleep until we reached the south side of town. As we drove north, she began to have reactions. She saw the shadow people in places that I knew they would be, and at every spot of some event, she correctly stated what she felt. But I had not told her anything about where we were going or the history. She literally broke down crying, begging me to get her out of that town." If you want to hear more Weird Darkness, you might want to consider becoming a patron. You'll get archive episodes, personal videos, and more. Also, Marlar House patrons now can hear chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Currently, I'm narrating the horror novel Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, and you can start listening right now from Chapter 1 if you are a patron and you'll get new chapters to listen to as I record them, until the book is finished and officially published. Then the entire book will disappear from my Patreon page, so you'll want to listen to the chapters while they're still available. Learn more about becoming a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. By the way, some amazing events are coming up and I've been talking with my bride and we're going to try to make it out to as many of these events as possible in person. May 19th is the Laugh or Die Comedy Fest in Peoria, Illinois. If you love comedy films, there you go. A full day of nothing but comedy films. And I am definitely a sponsor of the uh, festival. Not sure if I'll be there yet or not. We're going to try to make it though. June 9th uh, is the New Orleans Comic Con in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I won't be there, but if you're in the area, Mighty Con puts on an amazing Comic Con uh, and that just keeps getting, getting better and better every single year. You definitely want to check that out. June 16th is the DuPage Comic Con in Wheaton, Illinois. And I will be there for that one. I've already got a vendor's table set. So I would love for anybody to come out, shake my hand, and just talk to me. i love to meet as many weirdos as possible. Again, that's June 16th in Wheaton, Illinois. And then June 22nd is the Haunted America Conference in Alton, Illinois, just outside of uh, of St. Louis. Actually, it's June 22nd and 23rd. If you're in the St. Louis area, I would love to see you there. And then June 23rd is the St. Louis Mighty Con. So, I, I actually, uh, two. Uh, I have two events on the same day. And so my bride is going to help me out with that as well. So It's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope you can join me. You can see a list of all the events coming up by clicking the link in the show notes for upcoming personal appearances. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction? You can share your story at weirddarkness.com, and I might use it in a future episode. All stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Haunted Student Apartment occupied by a friendly ghost was submitted anonymously to MyHauntedLife2.com. The Ghost of St. Clair's Defeat was submitted by Kara Moore to WeirdDarkness.com. The Spirit of Our Grandfather Won't Leave Us Alone was written by John Waken from MyHauntedLife2.com. The Kansas City Massacre was written by Troy Taylor. The Cornish Ghost of Dorothy Dingley was written by G. Michael Vasey, and posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. And also at MyHauntedLife2.com, The Ghost Who Used Our Bathroom, written by Michelle Walton in London. Music in this episode is by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both of them in the show notes. And if you like news, politics, and laughs, be sure to check out my other podcast at DailyDoseOfWeirdNews.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness.